The Young and Healthy Podcast. You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. I'm Kate Sutter, your host for today, and we are tackling the topic of diet culture in today's episode. And for this important conversation, I have Dr. Jessica Lynn, who's an adolescent medicine doctor. She's an expert in both eating disorders and obesity. Dr. Lynn, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And we also have Dr. Sunita Lay, who is a pediatric psychologist and an expert in working with patients who have obesity and disordered eating, um, like binge eating. And we're so glad that you're here, Dr. Lay. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So to begin our conversation, diet culture, it's a culture in the title, right? It's a cultural thing. Is there a way that we can kind of start the conversation with a description of sorts? Like, how do you define it in the scope of the work that you each do? I think for me, uh, it seems to be this socially acceptable way to diet, exercise, like way that people talk about it as if like every single person does it and it is the normal way of life. To me, it seems to be a way that people have kind of taken it in and don't think of it as something that could cause harm unless they are doing it, quote unquote, too much. Definitely. I agree. I think of it as restricting what, when, or how much you eat in order to conform to this appearance ideal, which is kind of this idea that there is a perfect body that we should look like, like we see in the media. And I would differentiate it from the health ideal, which is what a body looks like when we're maximizing our physical, mental health, our quality of life, which looks different for everybody. Thank you for giving us kind of that foundation. So I'm hearing a lot of different things kind of in this area of diet culture. And I'd love to talk a bit about body image and self-esteem. And you mentioned mental health, Sunita. How do those kind of meld into this diet culture as well? So I think oftentimes diet culture as a way that we perpetuate what I would call weight stigma which is kind of an idealization of a certain body type and devaluing people that don't conform to that ideal. And research would say that weight stigma has been associated with depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, um, lower self-esteem, unhealthy eating behaviors, lack of physical activity. So it really does impact every aspect of a person's life. And I think sometimes people use it as a way of motivating And it has the opposite effect. I agree. And I think that that's a lot of the problem with diet culture is that people think it's normal or it's okay to be dieting. And trying to fit into that ideal just really drives this like, oh, if I'm not successful with dieting like other people are, there must be something wrong with me. So what do we know about why adolescents and teens can be so affected by diet culture? Adolescence is this period where your brain and is changing so rapidly. And one of the ways that adolescents are developing is their social development. And so they go through 
prior to adolescence, their whole lives surrounded themselves and their families, right? Like that is what they knew. They find, they love playing with their friends. That's great. But then suddenly when you go into adolescence, you start really internalizing and going into yourself and judging yourself. And one of the ways you judge yourself is, am I the same as my peers? And so they constantly, they're thinking, I need to be as smart as my peers. I need to look as good as my peers. I need to dress the same as my peers so that I become, it's the way that they define themselves and like value themselves. And so there's just so much focus on one of the ways that that focus is on appearance. That's the easiest Mm -hmm. way sometimes. Um, And so I think that that really drives that comparison of body, that comparison of food, that comparison of activity. Uh, And then furthermore, social media now is just even more appearance focused and looking at other people and how they look. So I agree. It's a time of identity development. It's a time where they are trying to figure out who they are um, and individuate kind of from their family. And the way that they're going to do that is by looking around them. What are my peers doing? Who are the people on social media or on the media that I admire and value? And how can I become like them? And that can sometimes become appearance focused. And when it is appearance focused, Oftentimes, with this appearance ideal, nobody embodies all of these qualities. So in order to be able to try to embody them, you have to do unhealthy things in order to get there or spend a lot of money in order to do that, whether it's restricting what I'm eating, whether it's to buy the latest cosmetics, right? I think advertisement does a lot to try to sell you on this image or this ideal. And so in the process of trying to form my identity and become this person, when it is focused on appearance, then I think those behaviors sometimes follow. So I'm particularly intrigued by your mention of social media and who some of these kids are are looking up to. And there are a lot of people on social media who are quote unquote fitness focused influencers. And I'm curious what you think of these these people and what they're doing and how you would help kids who might be looking at them as role models really understand who they are and what they're doing and what they should be taking away from something like that. I have very strong feelings about this. Um, So what one of the biggest problems that's happening right now is that there's this new fit ideal or healthy ideal in a different way than Sunita was saying at the beginning. And this is like this ideal of, it's like a muscle ideal. So like I want to be shaped this way and have this muscle and be toned and be fit. And what we are seeing right now is a lot of kids, especially really young kids. So these are like our 9, 10, 11 year olds who are now developing anorexia because they are following these fitness ideal models. And I don't have necessarily anything against or I don't have strong opinions about these influencers in general. What I worry about, though, is the audience that they're reaching is unfortunately, there are young people that may not, it it is not safe for them to follow some of those recommendations. So 
For example, we get a lot of patients or kids um, who thought that they were doing their best. Like they were so excited about the things that they were doing. Parents were excited that they were trying to eat healthier, like cutting out sugar or trying to exercise. And what oftentimes happens is these kids are so young that they don't really understand what they're doing to their body. And everyone tends to forget that kids still need to grow. And so Mm -hmm. sometimes cutting back actually ends up if you don't gain weight during your adolescence, you are actually falling behind. And so it is very natural to gain weight. People tend to forget that you have to gain weight. People tend to forget that teenagers eat a ton of food and it is very normal for teenagers to eat Mm -hmm. a ton of food. But when they start following some of these fitness guidelines, it ends up being far, far less than a growing teenager needs. And that's kind of what ends up getting them in in a lot of trouble. From a psychological perspective, Dr. Lay, what is that doing to especially these young kids who see somebody making recommendations that might not be appropriate for them? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that diet culture does is it perpetuates this idea of good foods, bad foods, that there's a right and a wrong around eating. And I think that that's hard because then that impacts their relationship with food throughout their life. And so I think it's challenging, right? Because I think when we think about eating, we don't want it to be restrictive and what, when, or how much. It ideally is something that's done throughout the day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, one to two snacks. Um, When we think about what to eat, well, obviously we want fruits, vegetables, proteins, um, grains, dairy, and it's okay to have ice cream and it's okay to have chips or crackers or these other things I enjoy, but to have it in moderation. And so oftentimes when I talk to my patients, we kind of talk about this pendulum, right, from restriction to excess. And what we're trying to do is find this kind of middle ground with eating. And I think oftentimes when we're looking at these influencers, there's these black and white rules that I'm not quite sure is always the healthiest approach for everybody. Um, And I think we like rules. We like to know what's right or wrong, what's good or bad, but then that ultimately ends up impacting our relationship with food. You mentioned earlier that I work with kids who engage in binge eating. Well, I think sometimes that happens kind of accidentally, right? So I start by skipping breakfast or skipping breakfast and lunch because I think that that's what's quote unquote healthy. And then when I get home from school, I am so hungry that I'm just going to eat because my body needs food and it's going to take that food in. Or I have quote unquote forbidden foods. Like I never let myself eat ice cream. And then when I finally see ice cream, I want all the ice cream because this is going to be the only time in my life I promise that I'm going to eat the ice cream, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it leads to a relationship with food that is oftentimes restrictive and unfortunately kind of increases vulnerability to things like binge eating. So diet culture and this idea of restricting food and kind of the idealized body image, this is not a new thing. How far back in history is there evidence of unhealthy dieting being part of culture? Very centuries So I think the earliest documented cases that they suspect are anorexia are actually people who were fasting and trying to lose as much weight as possible as a 
like to show their dedication to their deity or God. Uh, and so they were literally starving themselves for religious purposes. And it was really applauded and, and celebrated that they were able to do something like that, starve themselves nearly to death. Yeah. So there's a sense of like virtuosity through restriction that I think over time, at some point it was religious and now has kind of shifted to more appearance focused. Yeah. And I think there's always this depending on the time, there's like socially acceptable way of doing things. So Roman times, for example, this like binge purge cycle or what we now know is really bulimia was also socially acceptable to really have a lot of feasting and then throwing up to in order to eat more. Nowadays, for a while, I would say there was socially acceptable over-exercising that again, was really celebrated, but now we're realizing that it is really harming your mental health, your bones, your body in general. So I think it just kind of shifts from what we think is okay Mm -hmm. until we realize it's not. Mm -hmm. And knowing that this cultural practice has been around for a while, what do we know about generational diet culture and families and how that's impacting kids because I feel like with each generation, we also learn more about what some of these behaviors can do to a child's health. I'm just curious in your comments about the about the generations. I think it's challenging because I think that this cultural ideal has been present for a long time. And so oftentimes these kind of thoughts and behaviors are passed along from generation to generation where caregivers talk about their body or complain about their body and then engage in dieting practices. And then the child looks to the parent and is like, well, my body looks like your body, right? And so I don't want this to come off in any way as like shaming or blaming any caregivers or anything along those lines. But I think sometimes those behaviors are modeled. And then if that's what my caregiver does, well, then maybe I'll do that too. And because there is this kind of virtuosity kind of associated with dieting, then that sometimes gets reinforced, um, both within the family, but I also think sometimes in medical visits when we look at weight loss, right? Um, Because sometimes weight loss does occur, but how that weight loss occurs can be problematic if we're restricting the food that we're eating. And the same thing with weight gain. Sometimes weight gain does occur. And like Jess was saying, that's great, right? Our bodies gain weight over time developmentally. And so I think it's it's tricky because I think sometimes we engage in these behaviors. It's reinforced or praised by our environment. And then it keeps those behaviors going because, oh, I must be doing something quote unquote right. You made me re- think of something that I do think is really generational is that we used to really feel, and and I would say probably still a lot of the public thinks eating disorders means you are skeleton thin, and that is all that really means. And we now realize that eating disorders can occur in every shape, size, weight. And so I think that weirdly has been a good thing that has actually happened, that we are now being more accepting that someone in a larger body can have an eating disorder. Someone with a smaller body might not have an eating disorder or they have an eating disorder. We recognize it faster than we may, we used to. Mm-hmm. We're still really struggling with convincing, I guess, 
older generations or parents or grandparents who are taking care of their kids who might be in a larger body that what they're doing is problematic. And I think that may be something that we run into a lot, especially as Sunita said, there are lots of parents or grandparents that are like, but that's how I ate. Like I didn't eat all day. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I ate a lot at night or I was told I wasn't allowed to eat these things. So it's fine that my kid doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we're really seeing a difference, whereas a lot of kids now or the generation that we're really taking care of who are older kids or adolescents recognize that there are a lot of different ways to have disordered eating or eating disorders. And so sometimes I'm seeing more and more it's the kids that are recognizing it themselves before the parents are willing to accept it. Yeah. And I think to build on that, I think kind of tanking what she's saying and saying the opposite too, is that I think what diet culture says is that you can look at somebody's body and tell how healthy or not healthy they are by the body's size. And I and that is definitely not the case, right? Like everybody is going to look different. That's just the way our bodies are made and that's okay. And so I think that that is sometimes a little bit tricky too, in that if a patient is in a larger body, sometimes they can be encouraged to engage in eating practices that their siblings are not encouraged to engage in, um, which is problematic because no matter what size your body is, everybody needs consistent eating. Everybody needs proteins, all of those foods that mm -hmm. I said earlier, mm -hmm. right? A, a plate that looks like my plate. And so sometimes I think we inadvertently reinforce diet culture by treating bodies differently. And I will say if you have a medical condition or you're working with a provider on an eating disorder um, kind of treatment, there might be different requirements. But assuming that those things are not the case, I think sometimes diet culture inadvertently gets perpetuated in that way as well. So you had mentioned a couple minutes ago, body talk, like self body talk. And I think that, you know, people who are parent age, many have lived through their own diet culture experiences or perhaps are still in them. How does that body talk of the adults, the grown-ups around a child impact how they then feel about themselves or what they are kind of taking in and perceiving about themselves? Yeah, we actually are seeing in more research that parents' own weight stigma is a really high risk factor for a child's eating, like disordered eating or thoughts. And so I agree with Sunita, it's really hard because we also don't want parents who might have kids with an eating disorder to blame themselves because there is a lot that goes into it. There's a lot of societal pressure that really drove the parents to start feeling this way or talking this way. And so um, yet at the same time, a child living in an environment where everyone around them is talking about their bodies in a negative way or talking about how they need to diet, we know that that can have a negative effect. So what are some practical changes that grownups can make around kids to help break some of that cycle if they know that it's happening. And I mean, that's hard when you're as a parent, when you're struggling with something yourself. Are there some some ways that parents can consciously make those changes? Yeah, so it's such a balance, right? Because I feel like 
sometimes in the process of not wanting to create an eating disorder, then parents don't know what to do. Like, so I know what not to do, but I don't know what to do. And so I would say, ideally, we want to take a healthy approach to eating, right? Assuming no medical condition or eating disorder is present, I think taking the same approach with all of your children, no matter what size they are, really encouraging consistent eating throughout the day, making sure that there's a good variety of food in their child's diet. Like I said earlier, like those fruits, vegetables, proteins, uh, grains, dairy, and then also having those snack foods every once in a while, really approaching it in a moderate way, avoiding good or bad foods, being- Avoiding labeling. Labeling, good or bad, yes. I'm sorry. (laughs) Avoiding labeling foods as good or bad. and really kind of being thoughtful about the media and social media that you and your children consume Um, and having these conversations. I think to say that your child will never view like a movie or social media that um, kind of perpetuates these ideals probably isn't realistic. I think you can choose who you follow and who you don't follow and kind of have conversations around that. And when you do see that, kind of have some conversations around this. I wonder what message that's sending. Is that a message that we want to continue in our family? I absolutely agree. And I think the other thing to just bring back from what you had said earlier is everything in moderation. It is okay to have foods that you want. Otherwise, you're just going to crave them constantly. And so um, I I do want to definitely add to that list is carbs and fats are also very good for you. And we actually also know carbs and fats are having a good balance of carbs and fats in your diet is really, really important for hormonal health as you grow up through your teenage years. Um, But we also know it's protective against depression and um, eating disorders and relapse of eating disorders if you have one or recovered from one. And so really having all of the food groups, and that includes Halloween candy when it's Halloween time. Like you want your kids to see this stuff as okay to have. Um, And some of that might be as a parent, you have to model some of that stuff, which might be painful um, if that's something that a parent is also going through. But uh, sometimes it might help for a parent to model some of those behaviors of like, it's okay to do things that diet culture may say is bad for us. Whereas we really want to have a parent model to their kids that it is okay to have things to treat yourself sometimes because you should treat your body kindly. And so that might be eating Halloween candy when it's Halloween in front of your kids or with your kids um, so that they know that candy isn't just black and white labeled as something bad and you shouldn't have because that kind of drives some of that those thoughts or guilt that a kid might have that, oh my God, I ate candy, or I might have to hide that from my parents that I ate candy. Um, Whereas modeling that it's okay, then they might eat a few pieces and hey, that's it, out of their mind. So I really appreciate the, the modeling and this idea that, you know, everything in moderation is okay. Um, I feel like carbs, fat, and sugar really get a bad rep. And I think it's really interesting that they're necessary. I mean, hormones are so incredibly important in so many ways. And that balance really does help. Are there any family-focused resources that are kind of go-tos for you all that would be worth sharing with families in this forum that they could kind of reference if they were interested in learning more about how to combat diet culture in their homes with their kids? 
I mean, I think a good guide for healthy eating would be myplate.gov, right? I think sometimes it can be helpful. There's so much of what not to do, and you don't want to accidentally do something that negatively impacts your child. And sometimes it can be just nice to know what to do. Myplate.gov kind of has good eating guidelines and has different recipes and just different things that you can use as a family. Um, when I think about diet culture. I also think a little bit about weight stigma. The University of Connecticut's Rudd Center has a lot of re family resources around weight stigma that might be helpful. Oftentimes, um, kind of this stigma is also perpetuated by teasing or bullying. So stopbullying.gov has a lot of really good resources for teasing or bullying that might be happening at school, which then makes kids feel bad about their body, which then encourages them to diet. So those are a couple of resources that come to mind for me. And I think um, the only one I can think of that really promote, really more just general guidelines for nutrition, for athletes, for teenagers, everything would be youngwomenshealth.org and youngmenshealthsite.org. They're both, they come out of Boston Children's Hospital, but they really are just, they invite multidisciplinary experts to write all their blogs, to answer patient questions. Um, but I know that they have a lot of good, just general nutritional guides on there that may not be able to help discuss combating diet culture necessarily, but at least would be good guidance for kids and their parents about like, oh, this is all normal food that I should be eating. Perfect. If somebody is concerned about their child and the way that they're their adolescent or teenager is eating, what role should healthcare professionals have in kind of next steps for them? Where would be a good place to start? What are the right questions to ask? I think it would be along the lines of what Sunita was saying is treat, if, if a parent is coming in with these concerns, treat all of them with the same concern and respect regardless of what they might look like sitting in front of you. So regardless of their body size, regardless of their age um, and sex, I think a lot of boys have a lot, have bought into a lot of diet or fitness culture that we, we tend to miss. And so I think if it's actually gotten to the point that they're bringing it up to their primary care doctor or to their coach or dietitian or therapist that they may not be seeing for that concern at first, um, it means that it's getting bad enough. And so I think healthcare professionals really should ask about what they're eating in the day and what how food makes them feel. So I think that's a really big thing is how bad are these thoughts and how, how negative is their self-talk when they're eating? Uh, and I think that would be a good way to see how much help they might need. And starting with the primary care provider, if there is concern, is the right place to start? I think so, definitely. Yeah. Well, you have answered all of the questions I had. Thank you both so much. Any final thoughts or anything that we haven't shared here that you think would be important to ensure that we include? I think for me, one thing that I want to come across is that diet culture is not okay. And even though there's little ways of dieting versus dangerous ways of dieting, even those like little ways of dieting or talking about dieting with your friends or family 
might be hurtful to someone who is going through a lot more. So even just hearing it from a little bit from every single person ends up just building for that one person who might be a little bit more prone to having a lot more dieting or mental health concerns or weight stigma. Um, and so I wish that there was a way for us to limit diet culture as a whole because then people aren't getting bombarded with it. Yeah, and I think it's helpful to think about your why, right? Like we all eat, we all move, and really kind of thinking about doing it as a way to give my body energy, right? Like what gives me energy? What do I love? Um, and how can food and movement help me live this life that I want to lead? And so I think it's really kind of that value-based approach to eating, that value-based approach to movement that I think we're wanting to encourage. And I think diet culture really takes fear and fear of not looking a certain way and uses that to motivate. And I think sometimes people are have difficulty giving up diet culture because if I don't have this, then I won't do anything, right? But I think we can definitely use the life that you want to lead, value uh, values as a, as a motivator instead. Those are fantastic words for us to end on. I love that. Looking back at the why and finding motivation and being healthy and living the life that you want to live. I'm so grateful to both of you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to Young and Healthy. We'll see you next time. This episode of Young and Healthy was recorded on September 25th, 2023. The content of the Young and Healthy podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. This episode was produced by Kayla McNeil, and our theme music was created by Stephen Greco. Thanks for listening. Follow Cincinnati Children's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.